I next met with Dr. Harold Burstein, and as with Dr. Morrow, asked him to present patients from his practice, and to begin, he discussed a woman who was first diagnosed 27 years ago. So this is a case of a 66-year-old woman, now she's 66, who I've known for coming up on eight or nine years, but whose breast cancer history goes back 20-plus years. In 1985, as a premenopausal woman in her 40s, she was diagnosed with a node-positive breast cancer and underwent lumpectomy and radiotherapy and received adjuvant CMF chemotherapy, which was complicated by the induction of menopause. But she actually did not receive tamoxifen treatment because in the 80s, it was not clear that tamoxifen was valuable in premenopausal women. Although I can remember the people from the UK screaming up and down about that, that it was, and I guess they were right. They were right. And this was a famous mistake in the Oxford overview because the overview that was published in 1990 did not identify a clear benefit for premenopausal women with tamoxifen. And in retrospect, much of that was a confounding error because they did not separate tumors that were ER positive from those that were ER negative. And once they've been able to sort out hormone receptor status, obviously tamoxifen is very effective in premenopausal women. So she misses her adjuvant endocrine therapy in 85 and then... Ah, except she got ovarian suppression. See, I think that's what, in retrospect, really accounts for this long disease-free interval. From the chemo. Exactly. So what was the next uh, situation? So 15 plus years later, in 2001, she had an in-breast recurrence and underwent a mastectomy for recurrent ER-positive HER2-negative breast cancer, and at that time was given additional adjuvant-type chemotherapy, this time receiving doxorubicin cyclophosphamide followed by docetaxel, and then she was put on tamoxifen. So I know that she's still under treatment. She's received multiple endocrine therapy and chemotherapy. Not so much to get into that because this is a surgical audience, but there are a couple of things that the case does bring up. And one is, actually, I love this editorial that you and Jennifer Griggs just published, Deep Time, the long and short of adjuvant endocrine therapy of breast cancer. And this case kind of ties into that. It really does. So what we meant in alluding to Deep Time was a reference to some of the writings of some great science writers like John McPhee and Stephen Jay Gould. In the 19th century, Deep Time was the problem of trying to understand how long stretches of time could contribute to changes in the environment, both as it related to geology and the evolution of the Earth's structure and crust, and then subsequently with Darwin as it related to evolution. And The allusion to deep time is the idea that people have a very hard time conceptualizing over events that happen over millions or billions of years. It is just so beyond our frame of normal human reference that to wrap your mind around that was really an enormous scientific challenge for these great scientific thinkers of the 19th century. Well, it's a less noble question, but the issue of deep time in breast cancer is a very relevant one because... What we've increasingly appreciated is that there are these women who've done really well for decades and yet who remain at jeopardy for recurrence, in this case, as we see here, 15 plus years out from diagnosis. And you always wonder, well, who are such patients and what is it that has allowed their tumor to be dormant for 15 years and then eventually make a reappearance? Now, we know very little about what predicts such outcomes. We know a lot about what predicts early recurrence, so higher tumor grade, HER2 expression, lower levels of estrogen receptor or progesterone receptor, 
larger degrees of nodal involvement, higher oncotype scores. These are all things that predict early recurrence in the first five years. And not coincidentally, they are also things that predict benefit from chemotherapy. But beyond that, it's really unclear. In the literature, nodal status is still a predictor of late recurrence. So if you have node positive breast cancer and you're 10 years out, you're still at greater risk than someone who had node negative breast cancer. And lobular breast cancers, which are, of course, almost always ER positive, are also at greater risk for late recurrence. But there's a new interest in trying to figure out who women are who are going to be at jeopardy for recurrence in years 10 to 15 and beyond. And the practical question is that we're now looking at, you know, many, many years of antiestrogen therapy. And wouldn't it be nice to know which women really warrant these 10 or longer years of adjuvant endocrine treatment, as opposed to those women who simply don't benefit from it, either because they're cured or because it's just not going to make an impact. So another question this case kind of introduces is the management of local recurrence. This lady initially had lumpectomine radiation therapy. I know this was before you were involved in her care. She ended up having a mastectomy. But what about repeat breast-conserving surgery in this situation? It's an area where there is tremendous practice variation and very few data to guide us. Local regional recurrence is actually a big challenge for a multidisciplinary team. And the questions that we wrestle with are first, could you offer an additional lumpectomy? In general, we think not, because the concern would still be the risk of in-breast recurrence. And 99 times out of 100, the radiation therapy team is very ambivalent about offering additional radiotherapy to the breast. Now, as partial breast radiation strategies have taken hold, one of the interesting questions will be in the future, could you offer someone who's had an in-breast recurrence a second lumpectomy and then whole breast radiation after partial breast radiation? And we don't really have much safety data for that at the current point. So mastectomy is the usual surgical treatment. If the woman has not had full radiotherapy or if they have extensive residual disease in the regional nodes, then we also talk about more radiotherapy treatment, zooming in on the chest wall and then the regional nodes if those had not been previously done. Again, this requires close collaboration with the radiotherapy team to make sure that the fields are set up so as to minimize overlap to the underlying tissues and to really be careful about the prior fields. What is the current approach at your center with the interdisciplinary team to partial breast irradiation I have heard surgical investigators say, I only do it as part of a trial. Other people do it a lot. What are you all doing? So around the country, there's tremendous variation. Our center has been less interested in this as a research tool, and so it's not something that we have really focused on. And for women who want a shorter, more abbreviated course of radiotherapy, we often offer the so-called Canadian accelerated whole breast radiation that Tim Whalen has published about, which cuts the treatment time down to about three to four weeks instead of six to seven weeks. We see patients in consultation all the time who are looking at partial breast treatments. I think the things to be cautious about still about partial breast are that in general, the reports to date have really focused on tremendously low-risk patients who were carefully chosen by the surgical and radiotherapy teams to be at very low risk of recurrence. And we still don't know whether this treatment is going to be as effective for even ordinary risk patients as would standard whole breast radiation. I would certainly encourage people to participate in ongoing trials from the NSABP and others who are looking at that question. The second is that at least in Medicare data that have been filed, the outcomes in terms of 
cosmetic results and reoperations and things aren't so different with partial breast. And in fact, in some studies, they were less good with partial breast radiation. So the idea that partial breast radiation is going to be a tremendous cosmetic boon so far is not proven. There is a tremendous financial incentive to offer partial breast radiotherapy techniques. This often costs something on the order of twice as much as traditional whole breast radiation at many places, and that has driven a lot of utilization outside of clinical trials when we don't really know the full benefit or impact of these kinds of treatments. So I'm going to get more to cases of localized disease, but there are a couple more points about this case, and then I want to ask you about your other metastatic case, more from a surgical perspective, but maybe you can just sort of bring her up to the next point in time, because unfortunately, this lady, in spite of getting the mastectomy and sort of pseudo-adjuvant chemotherapy and then endocrine therapy with tamoxifen, unfortunately, I guess a couple years later, developed metastatic disease. And there is sort of a surgical-related question, but I'm kind of curious in terms of where the MET was and how they accessed the tissue, et cetera. So in this case, she was given anthracycline and taxane, as you say, pseudo-adjuvant chemo. And the thinking here was, well, she did so great with chemotherapy before, it kept the tumor at bay for 15-plus years. Maybe we could do that again. And then she went on to tamoxifen. But two years later, she did develop metastatic disease, and her presenting symptom was of sinus symptoms and headache, which led to imaging studies, which identified bone infiltration into the sphenoid sinus and sort of impinging on the dura and the brain. So she actually underwent a biopsy of this through an ENT surgeon and then received radiotherapy to that area, including part of the brain. And in terms of the biopsy, what did the ER and HER2 assay show? So the biopsy confirmed that this was ER-positive metastatic breast cancer, and it was still HER2 negative. Have you seen patients before with localized sinus pain? I have not, though. Over the years, I've seen other sort of isolated skull metastases. I have had one patient who had a metastasis in the orbit, had presented with some visual disturbance, and had a bone metastasis that was impinging on the cranial nerve, too, as it came into the orbit. So you do see these isolated kind of lesions. And whether they begin in the bone and then impinge on the nervous tissues or whether they are dural metastases is always hard to say. So there are two kind of related points that I think surgeons should know about that this case brings up. And the first is It's my impression that I'm seeing a lot more interest in particularly investigators and I think docs in practice on getting tissue when a patient is diagnosed with metastatic disease, and in particular, the interest of repeating the HER2 and ER assays and, you know, comparing not just taking what the result, even though it was a couple years ago, what the ER and HER2 was at diagnosis. Do you think that is, in fact, an increasing trend? And are you more likely to think about doing this? And if so, why? So it's clearly a trend. And I think it's important for a couple of reasons. So one is that clinically, we've all been faked out a few times. So I've seen patients over the years who have had presentations that for all the world looked like metastatic breast cancer, but which proved to be lung cancer which proved to be sarcoidosis, which proved to be multiple myeloma with bone lesions. And so it's always a good idea when making a hugely important diagnosis like metastatic cancer to know exactly what's going on. And the surgeons know the classic literature, which is that isolated pulmonary nodules have a very good chance of not being metastatic breast cancer, of being either a second lung primary or of being a benign process. I had a patient recently who had had a high-risk breast cancer, node-positive disease. She was a physician, and we'd been following some nonspecific pulmonary changes, and eventually we decided to remove an enlarging pulmonary nodule, and it turned out to 
be a granuloma. So, I mean, not everything that looks like cancer on a CAT scan is cancer. Secondly, it's important because as we drive our treatments by biomarkers, it's important to really know accurately what the biomarkers are. And so retesting for ER and HER2 is critical. And as we've had that experience and we now can compare primary tumor versus metastatic sites, the good news is that 80 plus percent of the time there is strong concordance between what the primary tumor was and the metastatic recurrence. But interestingly, 10 to 15 percent of the time there's a difference. And tumors sometimes acquire HER2 expression. Sometimes they are thought to have lost HER2 expression. Frequently, they have lost ER or PR expression. It's hard to know what to make of those results in the sense that if you were ER positive and then you lose ER expression, could you still be sensitive to endocrine therapy? I think it's always worth trying endocrine therapy in such patients. But particularly for the opportunity to introduce HER2-driven therapies, the chance to rebiopsy is a very valuable technique. So frequently women who have metastatic breast cancer have accessible tissue sites in bone or lymph node or cutaneous lesions, and those are readily amenable to biopsy. Sometimes it requires more vigorous intervention, mediastinoscopy for chest lymph nodes or lung biopsy, sometimes CAT scan-guided liver biopsy or other image-guided biopsy of the viscera. But I think it's always a good idea before tagging someone with a stage 4 diagnosis to try and get tissue. Yeah, I mean, you look at this lady now being treated for metastatic disease since 2003. I'm counting the number of endocrine therapies she's had. Anastrozole, fulvestrin, exemestane, letrozole, tamoxifen. So I think knowing that she was ER positive, again, seems to have pretty much pragmatic implications. Absolutely. And the other thing I wanted to bring up, again, in terms of things that are relevant to surgeons, is that in the subset of patients, which is the majority of people who have metastatic disease that have ER-positive tumors, there is kind of finally, or maybe there soon will be, a new option out there. And maybe you could just briefly talk about Everolimus and the Bolera 2 trial that was just presented at the San Antonio meeting in December and what you think it might mean over the next year or two in terms of management of patients like this. So the Bolero 2 study was a trial looking at Everolimus. It is a so-called mTOR inhibitor, by which they mean that it goes after one of the cell growth pathways called the mTOR pathway. And what has been interesting about this pathway is that it interacts with a lot of other signaling pathways in breast cancer, including the estrogen receptor pathway and the HER2 pathway. So there are a series of trials looking at introducing Everolimus into different settings, and the one that has generated the most positive results to date has been the study which you refer to as the Bolero 2 trial. This was a study of women who'd had tumor recurrence or progression on one aromatase inhibitor and were then given a second aromatase inhibitor, exemestane, with or without the addition of Everolimus. And what the investigators showed in this trial was that Adding Everolimus modestly improved the response rate and modestly improved the period of tumor control before the patient again had tumor progression. Now, this class of drugs, which is similar in outline to the so-called PI3 kinase inhibitor class of drugs, has some unique side effects, which can include mouth sores or stomatitis, pneumonitis, inflammation of the lung, some atypical skin rashes, and occasionally some diarrhea. So it's not an entirely benign class of drugs. Let's kind of go back to some more basic sort of local therapy situations. And you have several cases here that look like they could be interesting to talk about, beginning with your 62-year-old woman. Sure. This patient had a 1.3 centimeter moderately differentiated breast cancer. It was ER positive and HER2 negative. 
she had a sentinel lymph node procedure performed that showed metastatic cancer in one out of two lymph nodes. And the question that we were tackling with her was whether or not she would need adjuvant chemotherapy in addition to hormone therapy. Now, could I just ask, could you talk a little bit more about her local therapy? Did she have an axillary dissection? So that was one of the questions. She'd had a sentinel node procedure and one out of two lymph nodes was involved. And so we talked about whether she should have additional surgery. As the surgical audience knows well, there have been data from the ACASOG-Z11 trial, which has suggested that in women who've had a lumpectomy and who will be getting radiotherapy, that additional axillary dissection on top of a positive sentinel lymph node does not improve the long-term outcomes. And so, in general, I wouldn't have thought that she would need a completion axillary dissection, but one of the questions was, did we know enough already to make all the treatment decisions that we wanted to make? And in particular, did we know whether or not we wanted to give chemo? So, for instance, you could imagine that if we knew she had multiple positive lymph nodes, we would almost certainly want to give chemo. And by contrast, if this was the full extent of it, and if she had an otherwise very favorable breast cancer, then it might not require chemotherapy. So this was, again, a medical oncology decision that became a multidisciplinary case discussion. So you saw her at that point? We did. And what were her thoughts in terms of chemo? Was she willing to consider it? You know, Did she have any particular concerns about it? I think like most otherwise healthy breast cancer patients, her posture was... If it's going to really help me, then I want it. And if it's not going to really help me, then I don't want it. Tell me, is this going to really help me? And again, was she out there on the web trying to get information? Was she educated about stuff? Or was she just sort of letting go of it and turn it over to the team? She was a bright woman. She is a bright woman. But she was not someone who came in with, you know, 300 downloads from the Internet and videos of previous Neil Love conversations <laughs> with breast cancer surgeons and things like that. So what were the team's thoughts and your thoughts about, first of all, axillary dissection? You know, these days, people live in such dread of lymphedema and other complications of axillary therapy that they really like to avoid axillary surgery. And for understandable reasons, you know, the nerve damage is greater, the risk of lymphedema is greater, and it's another operation for many of these women. So in this case, the patient really wanted to avoid an axillary node dissection. And so we decided to check an Oncotype DX to see if that would sort of close the deal on whether or not she needed chemotherapy. Now, just to take a step back, when you say you thought about an Oncotype DX, and here's a patient who has one positive node, were you thinking that if her Oncotype DX showed a low recurrence score, you might have just not given chemo? That's right. So there are data from a SWOG study, 8814, done many years ago, that looked in postmenopausal women with node-positive breast cancer at tamoxifen alone or tamoxifen with what was given at the time CAF chemotherapy. And that study overall showed a benefit for chemotherapy, but the Oncotype DX test of the patients was done in that study, very similar to what the NSABP did for node-negative breast cancer. And the results were very similar qualitatively, which is to say women who had node-positive postmenopausal breast cancer who had a very low Oncotype score did not benefit seemingly from adding chemotherapy to tamoxifen. These patients are a greater risk for recurrence than node negative patients. There's no question about that. The greater the number of nodes you have, the greater that risk. But the real question is whether there's a marginal benefit for chemo. And if your tumor has a very low oncotype score, there doesn't really seem to be. I guess it also in a way kind of gets back to your deep time thing about sort of the biology of breast cancer and 
are you dealing you know now at initial diagnosis with a woman who has you know this maybe kind of similar biologically to your first case and maybe chemo is not the thing that's going to have the impact it's going to be endocrine therapy well, you know, there's sort of a teeter-totter relationship between those two. The more sensitive these tumors are to hormone manipulation, the less sensitive they tend to be to chemotherapy and vice versa. For many women, it's still going to be treatment with both because they each seem to have a very important role. So in this case, the other considerations were that, you know, if you knew that she had four positive lymph nodes, you know, you'd give her chemotherapy. And, and you might want to give her kind of intense chemo. Yeah, you'd give her your, you know, your A-game chemotherapy and hope for the best. But we didn't have that information, and she was not keen to have us get that information. So that's what prompted us to think about the oncotype. Although, I mean, I guess theoretically, even if you have four positive nodes, you still could have a cancer that's not going to be that sensitive to chemo, maybe more, you know, sensitive to endocrine therapy. That's true. The practical issues there are that, you know, the risk goes up enough that I think you can justify the chemo. So I don't agonize over giving chemotherapy to women who have multiple positive nodes or very large tumors. I think it's those women where you have a millimeter or two of metastatic disease in a lymph node, and you think, well, gee, you know, does that really such a game changer that they all warrant chemotherapy or not? And I think this, in fairness, is an area where different oncologists feel differently. And there's an ongoing trial from NCI and the SWOG looking at this in a prospective fashion, taking women who have those low-end oncotype scores and randomizing them to hormotherapy or hormotherapy and chemotherapy, even though they're node positive. So yeah, that's the RX Ponder study that's going to maybe provide hopefully a definitive answer. But this case really gets into sort of the people who, oncologists who think more biologically as opposed to sort of anatomically. I was just thinking about the fact that your colleague Beth Overmoyer on a program with me recently presented a woman who had a tumor that was over five centimeters. I think it was 6.2 or something. And but yet, amazingly, it was node negative, very low recurrence score, and she did not get chemo. And I mean, again, I think she was trying to make the same point that you are in presenting this 62-year-old lady. But in fairness, I've got to point out that there's a major editorial about to come out in your favorite journal, the Journal of Clinical Oncology, by your colleague, Dr. Dan Hayes. I don't know if you've seen it. It's just out electronically. And the last sentence of it says, basically, you should not use an oncotype in patients who are node positive outside of a trial. Well, Dan has consistently made that point, and on the one hand, I think he's got a lot of wisdom there. The stakes get higher, and that's the same with discussing Dr. Overmoyer's case of a five-centimeter tumor. You know, size still matters, and to be honest, I think it's getting enough for the most part from Oncotype to say, you know, let's talk about the two to three centimeter cancers that are node negative or maybe have very limited nodal involvement. We're not going to agonize over, at least as much, these larger tumors or multiple positive nodes. I hope that in the years to come, we can refine the molecular diagnostics to the point where we really feel confident that no matter what the initial stage or the, if you will, the anatomy of the presentation is, that we can make a confident decision. I think that Dan makes a purist's point, and he's on the mark to a large degree. At the same time, I think you could probably find instances within that window where the principles are well enough established that you know, an oncotype could be helpful. Well, reasonable people can disagree. And, you know, it's interesting, though, because I'm flashing on some of the conversations I've had with your colleagues in colorectal cancer, Charlie Fuchs, et cetera, where, you know, they have sort of an archetype, but there's no hormone therapy involved. When we talk about people with low recurrence score, these are people with high ER who are getting endocrine therapy, very different conceptually. 
That's exactly right. And it underscores how breast cancer at the moment still differs from many of these other tumors where you have a multiplexed decision. You're looking at both interactions between biomarkers, effective therapies, and chemotherapy. And that makes it a more complicated decision-making situation. So again, in the interest of sort of getting everything out on the table, any comments about other genomic assays like the recurrent score? We've heard about mammoprint. There's a whole bunch of other new markers out there. Any thoughts about these? So we're waiting for the great sorting out of these various markers. Mammoprint distinguishes tumors that have a good versus a not good prognosis. We don't use it widely here in the States. For a long time, it required fresh frozen tissue. That is no longer strictly the case, but it was a prohibitive barrier to widespread adoption of the product in the near term. I got to say that for most American oncologists, that probably isn't sufficient still because, as you were just alluding to with the decision-making in the colorectal cancer case, we don't want to know just if it's good or bad. We want to know how to treat it. And, you know, good breast cancer still might require treatment. So I don't find that the mamma print at the present time is that valuable an assay. Right. I guess that is important because, I mean, we've seen a million prognostic factors and papers over the years, but there are not too many that can show the impact of systemic therapy as was seen with recurrent score. That's really the beauty of the whole thing. The other widely used assay or widely studied assay more accurately is the PAM50 assay, which has been developed by Chuck Peru and Matt Ellis. This is a classifier tool that distinguishes women who have so-called triple negative or basal-like breast cancers from those that have HER2-positive tumors, and then they distinguish the ER positives on a spectrum from luminal A to luminal B. Luminal A's tend to be those tumors that you would think of as having the very favorable features, low-grade, strongly ER-positive, always HER2-negative, low-proliferative markers, low KI-67. Luminal B's, by contrast, not so much estrogen receptor expression, but still positive, perhaps HER2-expression, higher-grade, higher-proliferative markers. And consistent with all that's emerged, Luminal A cancers would be the low end of the oncotype spectrum, and the luminal Bs would be the higher end. The luminal Bs would probably be those you think you might need chemotherapy. Luminal As, you might not. So there'll be a commercial battle to see which of these assays, you know, in the years ahead proves most valuable. For most oncologists right now, it's the oncotype assay. Now, what about the use of these kinds of assays in the neoadjuvant setting? You would kind of think it's the same tumor, just in a different clinical situation that, you know, if you had this kind of cancer, the very high ER, low recurrence score, you know, maybe if they need a neoadjuvant therapy, they'd be better off with hormones. Yeah, that would be great to know, wouldn't it? And there's been some very preliminary work along those directions. Matt Ellis and colleagues have led the way here. They've done some studies of lower-grade tumors where they've shown that upfront endocrine therapy, neoadjuvant endocrine therapy, can be effective at shrinking the tumor. I think that fits with a lot of what we've learned. At the same time, we don't know exactly how best to use those treatments. It's not clear that it so dramatically changes their surgical outcome. Some of these patients might still require chemotherapy out back if they had a lot of residual cancer. But it is a very provocative area. And, you know, this, if you sort of do your science fiction experiment, say, what do you want cancer to look like in 10 years? Let's try and integrate some of the things we've already talked about today. So you get this tissue biopsy for a woman who has breast cancer. You send it to a profiling center where they do genomic profiling, and then they do all these targeted therapies. And you're going to come back, and it's going to say something like, 
this tumor is exquisitely sensitive to hormone manipulation. That's clearly the first drug you want to use and then shrink the tumor. Or it's going to say, this tumor has a mutation in the VRET gene and we've now got a VRET inhibitor and wouldn't it be cool to begin treatment with that product and then see what needs to be done afterwards. These are the directions the field is going and we're sort of in the early stages of that process. I guess another sort of practical issue about this is as we start to see commercialization, as you say, of different kinds of assays and FDA approval, whatever that means, a question of who should be ordering and what and when. I guess the idea, theoretically, you'd like to get the information early so the patient could have it available as soon as possible. On the other hand, I've heard oncologists out in the community, which might be different than your kind of situation with a really tuned-in team, who say, well, I don't like it when surgeons and radiation oncologists with oncotype, why don't they leave it up to me? I think this is something that's well handled by a working guideline within a group or a team, if you will. You know, we, we don't wait till we see the patient in the medical oncology clinic before we order ERPR and HER2. We know that that's going to be helpful. And so what I've heard from many surgical groups and medical oncology groups working in partnership is that they're able to craft a quick algorithm for which patients they're going to ordinarily want to know an oncotype score. And once you know that the patient's in that algorithm, then you can just go ahead and order it and the information will be available. And I think that's a very elegant way to handle this. It must be said that I don't think everyone needs an oncotype at this point any more than they need any other molecular profiling assay because some women shouldn't get chemotherapy no matter what, and some women are definitely get chemotherapy no matter what. And if you don't need the test to make that decision, it's not so relevant. But, you know, the oncotype test was optimized for node-negative, ER-positive breast cancer for women who had essentially mammographically detected or small breast cancers. Well, that's two-thirds of breast cancer in the United States. So I would imagine that most busy oncology practices will have some kind of guidance, which is to say, if the patient's between 45 and 70 or 65, and the tumor is between one centimeter and three centimeters, and it's ER positive and HER2 negative and node negative, or maybe a minimal involvement of the nodes, we're going to use the oncotype and just go ahead and get it. So I guess just to complete out with this lady, so you were thinking if she has a low oncotype that we would just go ahead with postmenopausal endocrine therapy, I'm sure, and AI, what actually happened? So we ordered the oncotype and it came back at 27, which is the high end of the intermediate spectrum. And so based on that, I recommended adjuvant chemotherapy. And because we were going to give her chemotherapy, it became less relevant to know whether or not there was more nodal involvement. So the trade-off here was we were doing more medicine treatment, but less surgery. And I think that that's a trend you're going to see a lot more of in breast cancer. As we do less and less to the axilla, as we do less even to the breast, we're now talking about whether we need to sample the lymph nodes at all in some women. What we're going to be doing more of is radiotherapy and systemic drug therapy. And finding the right balance for all those things is going to be the task of interdisciplinary care. He actually got a vision of Bernie Fisher as you were talking about that. Well, you know, uh, credit to the surgeons. So, you know, it's amazing to think what breast surgery looked like 50 years ago versus now. So remember, 50 years ago, women would have had a radical mastectomy with axillary node clearance. Then they lowered that to a modified radical mastectomy with axillary clearance. Then it became lumpectomy with radiotherapy and axillary clearance. Now we're talking about 
lumpectomy, radiotherapy with sentinel lymph node mapping. They're already talking about studies under the direction of Armando Giuliano doing trials where you have no axillary surgery whatsoever. You just have a surgical removal of the breast tumor. We've talked already about partial breast radiation techniques. So the surgical community has done through beautiful randomized trials, decades worth of work, and the success of that has meant that for many women with favorable prognosis breast cancer, we're doing less and less and less and less surgery. And what's allowed us to get away with that is the compensation that we can provide in the way of radiotherapy for local regional treatment and in the way of effective adjuvant therapy to make sure that the recurrence risk is less. And again, thinking about your GI colleagues, you know, we've seen now trials looking at rectal cancer therapy without surgery. We'll see where that goes. Now, this lady, has she gotten her chemo yet? She just began. And, you know, I mean, I guess I put myself in her position and maybe I feel a little more reassured about going through the chemo experience. I think that's right. One of the things that I often speak about with the Oncotype test is that, you know, it gives people a much more clear sense of what the realistic benefits of chemotherapy are. Many women imagine that, you know, if they don't get chemotherapy, they're going to die. And if they do get chemotherapy, they're going to live forever. Oncotype is a tremendous antidote for that kind of thinking. It shows very clearly the marginal benefits. And in a case like this, I think it's really helpful because let's say we didn't have this information and let's say she only had one positive node. You know, you might not push her so hard to get chemotherapy or if she had a rocky time with the chemotherapy, you might back off. Whereas, you know, knowing that the oncotype score is higher, you sort of say, well, gee, actually, I think, you know, you need the chemo. So we're going to maximize our supportive care. We're going to perhaps encourage you a little more vigorously to pursue the chemotherapy. So you had some other cases, but as usual, we got so sidetracked. I think these are the only two we're really going to be able to talk about. But let me just use this case as a way to ask you about actually what was going to be your next case, which was a node-negative situation as opposed to this first lady having a positive node. And without getting into the details, I'm just curious overall where recurrent score or any of these assays fit in from your point of view in the management of the patient with node-negative disease. Is there a tumor size, you know, that gets you uncomfortable either way, too small or too big? So I think the sweet spot right now for these assays is somewhere between one and two and a half or three centimeters in size for the node-negative patients. For tumors that are a lot less than one centimeter, the benefits of any chemotherapy become proportionally smaller. Again, we're talking about ER-positive cancers, and there aren't that much data, but in retrospective work from the NSABP, you know, the marginal benefits of chemotherapy for tumors that are less than six or seven millimeters get pretty small pretty fast. And by contrast, when you look at the data that are available on Oncotype DX and you say, well, what are the data for women whose tumors are bigger than three or four centimeters? Even in the node-negative setting, they're very small experiences, and it's hard to point to them with confidence and say we really know that they can tell us how valuable the role of chemotherapy is. So that's the sweet spot, I think. One to three centimeters for these node-negative cases is really an important area because that's what we find in clinic all the time. So, you know, the threshold for detecting a breast cancer on a physical exam or a mammogram is usually around one centimeter. And so this is the common presentation of breast cancer in the U.S. and Western Europe.